Your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Starting a new chapter. I've got verses 1 to 21 on the screen. We're not doing 21 verses, not that anybody actually thought that. But I am going to read all 21 verses because that's a new section. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 978. 978. Before I read all 21 verses, I'll have a few extra comments. It starts off in verse 1 with the word therefore, which obviously then takes you back to what was already said. Therefore, based upon what was previously said, he goes on and he's building on what he said. So the big picture of Ephesians would be this statement, having outlined God's sovereign grace that dramatically saved these Gentiles, and all of that is depicted in the first three chapters, Paul goes on to describe how their lives should be dramatically different from what they were previously. Chapters 4, 5, and 6. In light of what God has done, therefore, your life should be dramatically different. So that's where we're at. We've already done chapter 4. Now we're moving into chapter 5. The theme in all of this, uh, in chapters 4 to 6, the theme is not this, but this instead. So in chapter 4, we saw a lot of, don't do that. Your life is dramatically different because of what God has done by His grace. This instead. Not lying, not deception, but speaking the truth. Not stealing, but working hard so that you're in a position to share. Not this. This instead. What it looked like in the end of chapter 4, the therefore refers to at least... Or most immediately, the very last two verses of chapter 4. So the therefore builds on those two things. It would look like this. Verse 31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Not that. The Christian church shouldn't look like that. Individual believers shouldn't look like that. We shouldn't be clamoring and have angerness and bitterness in our hearts. Not that. But instead, verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So, not this, this instead. Now, having said that, let me read those first 21 verses. Chapter 5, verse 21. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. By the way, I'll pause here and say, the Bible is so incredibly relevant. I mean, I've never taught Ephesians my entire life. I've been here, I'm in my 29th year. And we're doing Ephesians for the first time ever. And it is so relevant. It sounds like, like, are you responding to what we're reading about in the news and what we're seeing take place all around us? It's so relevant. It sounds like Paul was writing for, for American culture in the 21st century. But there's nothing new under the sun. And so expressions of sin have always been expressions of sin. And it's just one more way that the Bible is timeless in addressing our problem and timeless in addressing God's solution. Verse 4. 
Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and pure. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's where we will be parking for a while. It starts off with this idea of therefore be imitators of God. The old King James actually uses the word follower, which has certain advantages because uh, imitator sometimes has a negative connotation in our culture. Uh, my grandkids sometimes mimic me so that whatever I say or whatever I do, they, they do the exact same thing and they're doing it to annoy me. They're not doing it to somehow flatter me or because they're so enthralled with my character or my personality traits. Uh, so mim- this idea of imitation kind of has a negative connotation But it's not meant to, especially in Scripture, the Greek word would look like this translated into English. We get our English word mimic from that. We are to mimic God. And this is somewhat unusual in that this is the only time where Paul, in all of his letters, ever explicitly says, or forthrightly says, I want you to imitate God. I want you to mimic God. He doesn't say that anyplace else. He alludes to the fact that believers may do that, but the command only appears here. Mimic God. Be imitators of God. Typically what Paul does is he says, mimic me. Imitate me. He does that more often than imitate God. Let me give you some examples of that. Corinthians. I urge you then, be imitators of me. And that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere and in every church. Imitate me, as I teach you my ways, what I'm teaching everyone everywhere. Now, either Paul is full of himself, or Paul has been given a message by Christ that needs to be delivered to the churches. 
And what I'm appealing to here as we develop this is that there is a standard that we are to adhere to, that we are to mimic and to imitate. That doesn't set well in Western American culture. Because in Western American culture, we like to be so individualized that we all get to decide for ourselves what ought to be pursued or mimicked or adopted into your life. Paul says, no, imitate me as I teach my ways in Christ everywhere and in every church. He says the same thing. Same Corinthian church in chapter 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Imitate me. He writes the same thing to the Thessalonians when he says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Imitate me and be an example to others so that they can imitate you as we follow and adhere to this standard, this body of truth given by God in Christ as to what ought to be pursued, as to what holiness and godliness looks like. To the Thessalonians, he says, for you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. This Thessalonian church became imitators of the churches of God in Judea, which is the area surrounding Jerusalem. What does that mean that they became imitators of the churches of Judea? Does that mean they sang Jewish Jewish songs? Does that mean they worshipped in synagogues? Does that mean that they worshipped on the Sabbath? Sundown Friday to sundown Saturday? I think what it means... The focus is on Christ Jesus. They're imitators of Christ Jesus. The message about who he is. The message about what he did. About his perfect life. About his death on a cross. About his resurrection from the grave. That every church and every Christian is mesmerized by Christ our Lord and Savior. And we desire to imitate him. And it all, in some sense... It's the same for everybody who is part of the kingdom of heaven. Hebrews 13 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Imitate me. Imitate the churches. Imitate the churches of Judea. Be an example to others. Imitate your leaders. But consider the outcome of their faith. Consider their character. And imitate them. So, all this talk of imitating and following, what conclusion should we draw from these passages? My conclusion would be this, and I think this is just allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture, and that is, imitation requires community. I cannot be imitating Christ on my own. It doesn't work like that. For me to be imitating Christ, imitating God, requires a body of believers. It requires the church. It requires me being an example to others. All of that is required. This idea of solo religion, solo solo relationship with God, is not the gospel of the New Testament. It requires all of us together, which is why we're gathered here on this Sunday morning. What should we call the standards we are to imitate and follow? 
I'm, I'm saying we, there's an appeal to a standard that it should be the same for everybody, whether it's Western culture, Eastern culture, whether uh, regardless of your uh, cultural background, Regardless of your language, all those things are inconsequential. It should be, we're appealing to the same standard. What should those, those standards that we're imitating and following, what should they be called? I could throw out the I word ideals. I don't think that's a good word. Because ideal sounds like, well, ideally, you get a certain thing. But if it doesn't work out ideally, you can be satisfied with something else. I don't think ideals are what we are trying to adhere to. I think it's more fundamental than an ideal. A second word would be virtues. Uh, virtues are the opposite of vices. This has been a, a word that's been used in church history. It's not a bad word. Paul only uses the word virtue one time in Philippians. He talks about that which is virtuous. So Paul doesn't typically use that word. Peter, it's only used maybe five or six times in all the New Testament. Peter is the one who uses it most. He uses it four times where he talks about add uh, to, your, to your faith a virtue, which is moral excellence. Paul, Peter talks about this, these ideas of virtues, these moral excellencies, these, uh, these traits that ought to characterize us. But I think the best word wouldn't be ideals or virtues. It's a word that is is most commonly used, overwhelmingly used in Scripture. And that would be the standard we are to, to adhere to are really called commands and commandments. Paul gives many, many commandments. Now, there's a lot of leeway within, within the law of Christ. We're not under Mosaic Old Testament law. I understand that. And we have a lot of freedom in the Holy Spirit so that there can be differences as to uh, things that are, are neither right nor wrong morally. There can be some differences. But a lot of the New Testament is filled with commands where Paul says, well, that's what he's doing in chapters 4 and 5. You know, don't lie, don't deceive, don't steal, uh, don't be filled with malice and anger and, and all the... Don't, those are commands. They're just commands. It's a little bit more black and white, the standard that the church is called to live out. There's a book we did 24 years ago in our church. I think it was a Sunday night book discussion. So it was a long time ago. It might have been the first book we ever did, but 24 years ago, I don't know if that would have been the first book we ever did. But it was one of the first books we ever did. It's called The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. It's I'm sure it's his best-selling book. He passed away really recently in the last couple of years. He wrote a lot of books. Um, This one is a particularly good book. And one of the things that's amazing about that book is that I can remember anything about it. Because I'd say there were three times today when I'm like, I go downstairs from Sunday school and I'm headed upstairs and I get here and I'm like, what was I coming up for? And it takes me a while, and I'm trying to think, like, what was it I was getting? And, I'm, and it just takes that long. But there's, there's two things I remember from that book we did 24 years ago. I've never forgot them. I'm only going to share one of the two things today. But what Jerry Bridges brought out in that book, which I found so convicting the first time I ever read it, was that this idea that a lot of the Christian life is couched in terms of living a victorious life, And he said, that's kind of a problem. 
Because really, it's not so much about living a victorious life, it's about living an obedient life. It's not just, I need to walk in victory, I need to walk in obedience. So I've got the audio book as well as the printed book. By the way, this is an extra copy if somebody wants to read it. It's not a completely clean copy. I'm sure it came from a uh, some sort of a Goodwill store. So it's got a, a few markings in it, but it's extra. If you want to read a really good book, if it's on your radar, I'm happy to give it away. But uh, this is what Jerry Bridges says about victory and obedience. It's literally like a minute and ten seconds long. The Christian should never complain of want of ability and power. If we sin, it is because we choose to sin, not because we lack the ability to say no to temptation. It is time for us Christians to face up to our responsibility for holiness. Too often we say we are defeated by this or that sin. No, we are not defeated. We are simply disobedient. It might be good if we stopped using the terms victory and defeat to describe our progress in holiness. Rather, we should use the terms obedience and disobedience. When I say I am defeated by some sin, I am unconsciously slipping out from under my responsibility. I am saying something outside of me has defeated me. But when I say I am disobedient, that places the responsibility for my sin squarely on me. We may in fact be defeated, but the reason we are defeated is because we have chosen to disobey. We have chosen to entertain lustful thoughts, or to harbor resentment, or to shade the truth a little. So if you want to know how that fleshes out in, in the context of a larger book, he does all that. He explains the nuance of what the little glimpse you got there. So those, those are the standards. They're commands. Let's build on that. So what is God like? We're to be imitators of God. What is God like? We're to mimic God. What is he like? I think you could come up with a lot. We could come up with a long list and do a long series on what is God like that we should imitate. You could say God is love. You could say God is truth. You could say God is light. You could say God is holy. And all of that is true. That's all very scriptural. We could come up with a bigger list than that. But if I keep it in the immediate context, when when Paul writes, I want you to be imitators of God, what is foremost in his mind is really what he just referred to back in chapter 4 and verse 32. God is kind, God is tender-hearted, and God is forgiving. So what he immediately is saying when he tells me, he tells us, be imitators of God, I should be kind, I should be tender-hearted, and I should be forgiving. Now, I don't have time to look at Matthew chapter 5, but this is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And on the Sermon on the Mount, if, if there's any question, it's kind of like there was that uh, individual that asked Jesus about should he love his neighbor. And Jesus said, you know, you should love your neighbor. And he's like, but who is my neighbor? Like, who could my neighbor be? Like, who qualifies as my neighbor? And Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan to make it simple for him. So, I'm to be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving, but I'm like, well, who does that apply to exactly? Like, who am I supposed to be kind to? Because I know some very unkind people. I know some people that don't say nice things about me. Uh, who am I to be tender-hearted toward? Who am I to be forgiving toward? And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus kind of addresses that situation, and he, and he uses God as the standard, because 
He's the one we're supposed to be imitating. Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he, our Father in heaven, he, God, makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So, God is kind and tender-hearted on some fashion to everybody, believer or not. He doesn't just send rain on Rogers Field. He sent rain across the entire county, for which we're all grateful. But God is kind and tender-hearted on some level to everyone, because we all get better than we deserve. I'm not saying everybody winds up in the kingdom of heaven. But everybody who has ever breathed the breath of God's air has gotten more than they deserved. So, Matthew chapter 5 makes that point. It ends with this statement, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Imitate me. Because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, isn't teaching just a bunch of rules and regulations so that you can adhere to rules and regulations. The goal is to imitate the Father, is to develop his character traits, to reflect those character traits. It's not merely to perform to a certain standard. It's to become like your Father, which is why... Paul writes, be imitators of God as beloved children. Your heavenly father, your children, be imitators. He could have just said, therefore be imitators of God and left it at that. But by adding, be imitators of God as beloved children, the standard takes you back to, don't you recognize God's love toward you? As beloved children, you are a beloved son or daughter of God in Christ Jesus. As a beloved child, be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving. Children imitate and follow, for better or worse. That's what they do. My neighbor, uh, Terrence, uh, his his youngest child now is in middle school, so he's older. But when he first moved in the neighborhood, his youngest child was, you know, just a small lad early grade school, and Terrence works at ADM, but he, he really loves doing uh, lawn care and all that kind of stuff. Uh, if he could do it 12 months of the year, he'd probably quit at ADM, but it's kind of hard to do that. But he does a lot of lawn care and a lot, all that kind of stuff. And, and when Terrence, when his boy was young, uh, Terrence is the dad, little Terrence is Terrence Jr. He just goes by T. But when Terrence would mow his grass, if he used the push mower, little T was out there with his Fisher-Price mower just pushing right along with him. He just wanted to be like his dad. You know, that's what kids do. For better or worse, kids imitate. He goes on to say, Paul says, and walk in love as Christ loved us. Imitators of God as beloved children walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You really don't have to guess as to what I think about God. All you have to do is to look how I treat other people. Because if I if I have unforgiveness in my heart and bitterness in my heart and grudges in my heart and anger in if I've got those kind of things in my heart, if that's what comes out of my heart, that tells you what I think about God. 
or it tells you what I don't know about God. Because the standard for my behavior is rooted in God's love for me and what Christ did for me. And if I've grasped that, I have no business and no ability to withhold kindness and tenderheartedness and and an, an attitude of forgiveness to the people in my life. I just don't. They go together. And one proceeds out of the other. Some additional considerations about how, when, and where Christians are to be imitating and following God. Wow, I thought I could do two verses. Now I'm starting to wonder. Um, This is kind of a side note. We're to imitate God, and it flows immediately out of verse 32. You know, the kindness, the tenderheartedness, the forgiveness. But, But I want to couch it, just pull away for just a moment in big terms, how we are to live our lives and think about everything in light of who God is, so that in matters of theology and faith and doctrine, I should get that from God. Like, I don't get to decide what faith looks like or doctrine looks like or how God reveals himself. I don't get to decide, well, my God would never do that. My God would treat people this way. God reveals who he is by himself. He doesn't need my definitions. God reveals himself. So I am to imitate what I think about God, about sin, about faith, about repentance, about life of obedience. That should all be derived from who God is, right? That's easy. That's, that's the easy one. If you're in church, if you're a Christian, you think what we believe about faith and religion ought to start with what God says in his word. That's simple. But how about if I add, what about matters of morality and ethics and sexuality? Does God know anything about morality and ethics and human sexuality? If he does, shouldn't my understanding of those things start with what God says and imitate and mimic and repeat his word and his standards rather than cultural standards which change with every wind and, and wave? There's an ebb and a flow as to what's acceptable or not acceptable. God's standards don't change. What about... In matters of home and family, does God know what husbands ought to do and what wives ought to do? Does God know how to discipline children? Does God know what a family ought to look like? Well, our culture says, I mean, psychologists write, you know, sociologists write, this is what the family should look like. Does God know about those things? I think he does. I think it ought to start with God. I am not saying that there is no truth that can't be outside of Scripture. I think all truth is God's truth, but all truth, wherever it is found, is judged by the truth of God's Word. That's where I come from. The Bible is the standard that judges all other truth claims, no matter where they come from. So I think my views of morality, ethics, sexuality, home, family, children, I think that all all ought to be derived most immediately from what God knows to be true, and I should mimic that, imitate that, follow that. What about in matters of society and culture? Does God know what makes for a good society, good culture? I think he does. What about in matters of commerce and wealth? Does God know anything about money and exchange system? I think my views of 
of commerce and wealth ought to be derived from what God has already revealed to be so. And to adapt my thinking and my ways to that. What about in matters of psychiatry? Psychiatry is interesting in that it comes from a Greek word, suke, which means life or soul or heart. The Bible is all about psychiatry, just for the record. The Bible's got three words for life. It's got bios, which is your physical life. It's got suke, which is your personality, your character, the part of you that you can't see or I can't see. But it's who you are. It's what makes you who you are. The Bible uses that word a lot. And then the Bible has a third word for life called zoe. I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. I give you eternal life and nobody can take it away from you. That life is eternal life. I think psychiatry has some very interesting uh, insights into human character and nature. I think they've also missed it by a wide mark on other occasions. So at the end of the day, who we are, what makes us tick... What ought to be diagnosed? It starts with what God already knows to be true. It starts with God. What about in matters of science, biology, chemistry, geology, you name it? Does God know about those things? You can't rightly understand biology apart from Scripture. Because because so much of science starts with this idea that what we see now has always been true. And the Bible's already made it explicitly clear you're wrong about that. Because the world that we have now is not the world that God created. The world we have now is marred and under a curse of sin. The world we have now has once been cleansed by a worldwide flood. So not everything has always remained the same. I can't rightly understand any of the sciences if I take God out of the equation. It starts with God. So that was a free sidetrack. Let's go back to our text. We are to walk in love. This idea of in love shows movement and progress. God doesn't say, imitate me and sell all your belongings and go overseas and be a missionary someplace where you don't speak their language. That's not what is required of Christians. What is required is you, where you're at, in your set of circumstances, walk in love to the people in your life. And charity starts at home. Walk in love. The standard for this walking in love is as Christ loved us. He's the standard. And then you build on that is you've got the statement and gave himself up for us. This giving himself up for us, asking the question, you know the answer because you're reading it on the screen, but what did Christ give? You could say, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave us the Sermon on the Mount. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave us the golden rule. Walk in love as Christ loved us and made the blind see and the lame walk and the deaf hear and he cleansed the lepers. And you'd be wrong. That that's not really the standard that's being appealed to, though he did all those things. And I'm grateful that he did. The standard is walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That word, it's only one word in the Greek, gave himself up. It's that word. It's a compound word. The para means near or beside. If you've been in church very long, you probably have heard somewhere along the lines that the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. 
That's a Greek word. Para means one who comes alongside, one who comes nearby, one who accompanies you, who cares about you. He comes near. So that's the first part of the word. The second part of the word means to surrender or to yield up. That word is used 121 times in the Bible, 63 times. So more than half of the time, it's always translated to deliver or deliver up. 40 times, it's actually translated to betray. Judas betrayed Christ. And it's used many, 40 times, so it's used a lot. Uh, It's unusual in that it's not translated deliver up here. This is actually a rare exception. I kind of wish it said, and walk in love as Christ loved us and delivered himself up for us. He gave himself up for us which I guess in one hand, that's kind of nice. He, he gave up, but he delivered himself up. For, he didn't betray himself, but he did deliver himself up. And then if I want to turn this into a word of F, well, actually, it's used two other places in Ephesians, which I don't have time for. Uh, but my question would be, what response is called for in light of what Christ did? If I'm to love as Christ loved us, and he gave himself up for us, ask the question, what do you give yourself up, up for? Who do you give yourself up? up for? How do you surrender your rights and your position to be like Christ? Because Christ did not believe that his position in heaven was something to be so grasped that when the, when the eternal God orchestrated and, and decreed a plan of salvation whereby the Son would come, the Son wouldn't be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Ah, not for me. I'm not giving myself up for nobody. He gave himself up that we would have life. How do we give ourselves up to reflect what Christ gave up? That's the standard. That's what's being called for. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That conjures up two things. It conjures up, number one, in the Old Testament, they had these sweet savor offerings. Fragrant offerings. Uh, fragrant sacrifices or fragrant offerings. Uh, there were the offerings in the Old Testament. There were two categories. There were there were fragrant aroma offerings, and there were some that were not. The sin offering and the trespass offering were not considered sweet aromas. They were necessary to cover sin, but they weren't sweet aromas. The 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 fragrant offerings in the Old Testament emphasized the gift. The value of the gift. And when the gift was offered to God, it was a pleasing aroma to God. He, he found it acceptable, the gift that was given. The idea of sacrifice refers to the animal that's slain. And Jesus is both. He's both an invaluable gift that the Father finds pleasing, which he said on both his baptism and transfiguration, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And his sacrifice was perfect and acceptable. Once for all time, never to be repeated. So as a sacrifice, it was perfect. His obedience was perfect. All of it was pleasing to God. It's also the word that's used in John's gospel of Mary, who brings uh, perfume to Christ. And it's worth a year's wages. And pours it on his feet. And I don't remember if it was on his head as well. And it filled the room with a pleasing aroma. What Christ did, how he lived, what he gave, was a pleasing aroma to his Father. And that's the standard that the church is called to. Nothing less, 
and there could be nothing more. What are your comments and questions? Uh, yes, I think there could be. Actually, I've got a book by Steve Brown called that actually has doormat in the title. Uh, and he, he addresses that specific thing. So, yes, uh, because, I mean, Christ is a pretty good example, right? Because Christ uh, lived in perfect obedience to his father, but he wasn't living in perfect obedience to all the pressures of the people that wanted him to do certain things. So he was... He lived in obedience to his father. He did what God had called him to do, but he didn't succumb to all the pressures of life around him. So, so yes, there is a line, and no, it's not such a definable line that it would be the same for everybody. Uh, and there's nuance to that, and there's a book by Steve Brown by that I could probably lend you if you were interested. But uh, that's, that's a good question. A lot of the Christian life is nuance. If I'm never giving anything up, if I'm never sacrificing what I think I deserve or my rights, if I never do that, it seems like that's a yellow flag, right? There should be, uh, yeah. Uh, Joe? Yeah. Yeah. That's what anybody's got hopes on. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think Cindy, uh, I mean, I think somebody else was involved in the, the discussion, but it happened really within the last few months. So, like, it's like one of those stories, like, where were you when this happened? And it's like something I, like, I'd never thought about that before. It's the whole idea of Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord and how the angel of the Lord gave himself up and Jacob won the tuggy, the wrestling match. It's like, and that's always, that's always been like, and he tries to go like, how is it that Jacob, a man, is wrestling with the angel of the Lord and, he, and the angel of the Lord loses? Like, how does that work? Like, are you kidding? An angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord gave himself up. Christ gave himself up. What happened with Jacob is a picture of what Christ will do. The angel of the Lord didn't lose to Jacob. Are you kidding me? He could have smote him dead. He gave himself up because Christ gave himself up. Hannah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, we've got a closing song, which I think goes really well uh, with this idea of, of uh, imitating God, imitating Christ in this case. 377, may the mind of Christ my Savior, let's stand. We'll sing this through, and this will be our conclusion. Darwin, you want